Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. This is your first time listening. Thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week, so please subscribe. You won't miss any of our upcoming shows. This show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. And thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host, Patrick, from Pull String Press for this great studio. Hey, Patrick. Hey, good morning, Mike. Patrick, I want to give a shout-out to our guest here, Ryan Jenkins. Ryan drove all the way in the rain, which we hardly ever have in California, down from San Luis Obispo to join us. Thanks. Yeah, happy to be here. Welcome to the show. And I also want to give a shout-out to someone I know who's listening right now. This is a cat who walks everywhere in Santa Barbara. He lives kind of in the San Roque area, so for those of you who are listening to us in Israel, uh, there's seven of them, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah. Uh, that's a meh, good five miles from the studio. He walks everywhere in town, and he listens to our show, he told me. And so, Kevin, I know you're listening to this, and now you can uh, yell at me when you see me for coffee. <laughs> I w- in my head, I just imagine Kevin jumping up and clicking his heels together. Like an old, <laughs> <laughs> like an <old> yes. <laughs> yeah. and, and actually, Kevin's been on our show. Kevin Burke has been oh, on our sure. show, yeah, yeah. and he's a frequent listener. Um, and Ryan, I, I met you um, last year uh, in the process of getting ready for you to do your TED Talk. And uh, your TED Talk's now up on the internet. I'll make mm-hmm. a I'll make a link to it. It was called "What's the Perfect Driverless Car? It Depends Who You Ask." Yeah, that's right. What was the the tell our listener what the idea worth sharing was in that eighteen minute talk? Well, the idea worth sharing was that when we try to design technologies, it involves making compromises between a lot of different parties and a mm. lot of different interests all of which are valuable and all of which are worth pursuing. Mm. And the idea there was it depends who you ask, what kind of car would be the best car. If you ask manufacturers, they might give you a different answer than if you ask uh, a lawyer, and especially if you ask an ethicist, which is my area of training. Right. Um, And so what I was trying to do or what I was hoping to do was provide some signposts for some of the ethical questions that are raised in the design of technology in general uh, through the lens of talking about driverless cars. Is there an, uh, I'm, I've been in software for years, and I don't remember ever having an ethics professor <laughs> on the well, team. Very, well, very few of your, your softwares were in control of, of the physical <laughs> being of the person, right? I mean, like, <laughs> will this knife fall on their hand or not? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, so tell me about that. What's the, uh, we have a lot of software people who listen to them. It's a tech-focused show a lot of the time, but a lot of business people and, and uh, entrepreneurs. How do, you, how do you frame that question for a team? Well, I think that there are a couple different things that philosophers can provide or ethicists like myself can provide. One of them is to clarify um, ethical assumptions that they might have been making without even realizing it. Hmm. So decisions Hmm. that they make just in the course of their everyday job that turn out to be morally freighted or have moral dimensions that they might not have appreciated. Um, One example that was making the rounds a little while ago was the case of emoji on Apple's uh, iPhone. Hmm. And of course, Apple's not the only platform that has emoji, but 
there were, this was before they added the option to specify the race of the emoji oh. or the ethnicity of oh, the emoji right, right, that you were sending. Right. Yeah, and so someone pointed out that there were no emoji for African Americans, but there were 12 different emoji for trains. And that, <laughs> <laughs> and that reveals something sort of implicit about the people that were designing that technology. And we can, we snicker at it, but there's also an implication there. And the implication is that certain people using that technology might feel a certain way. They might feel marginalized or they might feel like their interests are being given uh, less attention. Hmm. And I've had students in class say things like, uh, well, the emoji are yellow and yellow's not a race. Yellow's not an ethnicity. Um, you, you make it sound like the default was white and that the only uh, race oh. you could express was white. And I say, yeah, but certainly it, it seems to me that a, a white person has an easier time sending a yellow emoji or an easier time identifying with a yellow emoji than someone who's African-American. And even the fact that we see that kind of choice as invisible or as totally neutral. Um, well, for the last 25 years, The Simpsons has been on yep. on the air and The Simpsons the lead characters are portrayed as yellow. Mm -hmm. and any ethnicity that is not <laughs> yellow is is you know uh, is portrayed with a different color. As of, other, yeah. As other, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, what's your? I mean, I'm thinking that as soon as that gets called to the attention of the designer, they're like, I mean, that had never even crossed their mind. Right. Which is your point, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, one of the things that we can do is just be on the lookout for the moral implications of decisions like that that we make. And I say that they're moral implications. I'm not trying to say uh, anything grandiose or um, really profound about that, but it's uh, even very simple decisions, even decisions that seem very innocuous can be morally important because they have implications for people's well-being. They stand to benefit or harm people that are affected by them. How is that different than being politically correct? You know, it's a good question what political correctness is. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Well, I, 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 I don't mean at all to imply that it's not a, not a significant, not a real concern or anything like that. Um, I've, been, I've been interested in this question recently. I can't imagine why. Yeah, um, <laughs> it hasn't come up because lately. When, yeah. Because when people are people seem upset about political correctness. There, there's debates about political correctness. and It's the, binding us in a way that we are uncomfortable with. I don't want to be bound by political correctness. Yeah, yeah. And it, if that's true, if it is binding us, if it is restricting the ways that we're able to talk or the ways that we're able to uh, express ourselves, I wonder exactly what people think political correctness means and what kinds of things it's restricting us from saying, what kinds of ideas it's restricting us from saying. Because I think that the response is um, that what you call political correctness, I call refraining from hate speech or something like that. Mm. Like speech that's offensive in a way that's emotionally damaging to someone. Uh, I think that those those two ideas are very closely bound up. Although I, I haven't thought it is, no, it's not my main area that I think about, so I haven't thought about it as much as I'd like to. I don't want you to go uh, too fast over the front of what, or over the back of what you just said, but sure. but you said emotionally damaging yeah. to someone else. Yes. That's, that's not a small thing. That is yeah. not an insignificant, through an unintentional act, you're creating emotional damage 
yeah. inside of somebody that you did not intend to create emotional damage mm-hmm. because of your because of not realizing what you've done. That's right. Yeah. And you think about free speech and the way that different cultures have drawn the boundaries around free speech differently. So for example, in Europe, I think it's in Germany in particular, it's illegal to deny the Holocaust. And in America, we find that kind of suggestion outlandish because we have this supreme faith in the ability of people to share ideas and to consider those ideas rationally. And we have the view that if you let a thousand ideas blossom, surely the best ideas, only the true ideas will find their way to the surface. And so we don't want the government telling us what kind of ideas we can and can't share. And in Europe, in Germany in particular, they think that people not only have a right to free speech, but they have a right against being offended or a right against being marginalized or oppressed. And one of the ways that they think about, one one of the instruments that they see as an instrument of oppression can be speech. And so they, Europe also thinks that we ha- you have a right to speech and they encourage the free expression of ideas, but they appreciate that that right bumps up against mm. other things that we think are valuable in society, like people's feelings of um, people's feelings of not being uh, repressed or not being marginalized by speech. Now, notice, notice that we have this in America too, because we do restrict the free speech of people to say things like fire in a theater, mm-hmm. and so we do appreciate. And we, rec- we clearly recognize that you can restrict speech in some limited cases where people's well-being is at issue. And one way of thinking about this difference is that in Europe, they simply give a little bit wider berth to people's well-being. I'm going to go back to this idea of having an ethicist on the team, mm-hmm. uh, which I've never heard of before. Um, but then I look at the courses you teach. And by the way, you, you teach in the philosophy department in the College of Liberal Arts up at Cal Poly. Um, I love Cal Poly, um, an incredible school. But you teach a class called the Philosophy of Technology. Mm-hmm. And why I'm interested in that today is I'm reading Kevin Kelly's new book, The Inevitable, which is the 12 technological trends that are going on. And I'm only reading it uh, 30 minutes at a time so I can let it soak in. And then I'm talking with friends at night about this. And I happen to have some friends who are as opposed to technology as humans can be. (laughs) Used to be called Luddites. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't call them Luddites because they use computers to do their work. They're just opposed to what they're But they're opposed to (laughs) the- They hate every second of it. But they're opposed to the idea of robots and AIs and where all of those things are going. So uh, what's what's the, the overview if someone's looking through, and that's not just the title, but what's the next sentence in the course book on the philosophy of technology? That, it's, it's a phenomenal class. I'm teaching it now, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be teaching it uh, this quarter right now. And if I, it's hard to boil it down to one sentence, but if I had to, it explores the relationship between technology or the things that we make and the human condition. It explores the relationship between artifacts and the texture of human life. Hmm. I love that. I can't take credit for that. I just want to, I just want to <laughs> savor that yeah. for a second. Between artifacts and the texture mm-hmm. of human life. Professor, um, I, I've spent uh, far too many years in academia myself, and I find that um, it's, it's a rich environment where you get to really um, 
spend time on very minute, small, you know, like like taking, pulling out just one one kind of experience and, and spending a lot of time with it. The students that are coming to your classroom, uh, could you give us kind of a profile of, of what mm. these people mm. are, are looking to study, investigating, and, and, and what are they hoping to, uh, or what do you think you're hoping to, to, to build as the, as the outcome for them inside of a class like that? Yeah, the, the students are fantastic. Uh, they're, uh, they're diligent and they're serious and they're sincere. Oh, that's that's not those aren't words that are attached most often to the emerging <laughs> generation that we've been experiencing lately. Yeah. So that's that's Diligent, nice. That's, it's nice sincere. to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a lot of them, as you know, Paul, uh, Cal Poly is a polytechnic institute or a polytechnic uh, university. A lot of them are engineers of various kinds: materials engineering or electrical engineering, software engineering, which is different from computer engineering somehow I'm not sure exactly how <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask you if you can if you if you have to know the differences when you're yeah, thankfully I do not yeah, yeah. Um, and so a lot of them are people who are preparing to design and create technologies and a lot of them then will have a uh, an immediate hand in the shape of the technologies that are introduced in the future but I stress for them also that even if they're not engineers I'm not an engineer uh, and these questions are still fascinating to me because mm -hmm. I use technology, yes. I interact with technology, and it's impossible for me not to be affected by technology. Even if I were to try to unplug as much as I could, it's not up to me the way that the society around me is influenced by technology. So these are questions that impact the prospects that we have for living a rich human life, um, whether we're people who are engineers and manufacturers or not. And wh what I'm trying to communicate to them, it's, it's um, a kind of minor tragedy that uh, someone like me that, that cares an awful lot about philosophy, you know, enough to devote my life to studying it and thinking about it, I get about 40 hours with these students. Total, and over the course of a... That's right. About 20 meetings at two hours mm -hmm. a pop. Yeah. So 40 hours minus the holidays or minus days I'm out of town or what have you. And it's a kind of pressure that you feel early in your teaching career to take a subject that you care about so passionately and one that you've decided to devote your life to and say, how can I boil down the most mm. important aspects of this to mm -hmm. 40 hours? I mean, it would be like if you had one 40-hour work week with someone to impart everything that you thought was important about your favorite subject. So I can't imagine the inner monologue when we told you you only get 18 minutes on stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was hard. Um, and uh, there's much more to say. I mean, what can you hope to accomplish in 17 or 18 minutes? What can you hope to accomplish even in 40 hours? An introduction. That's exactly right. right. Plant, plant something small. That's exactly right. It's, uh, you have to come to see teaching as planting a seed rather than trying to move a tree. Huh. Is that our quote for the show? <laughs> I was, I was, I, I'm sorry. I'm from the art department, and uh, <laughs> and I have a real strong visual of a kid who submitted an, an image of moving uh, a tree after cleaning all of the dirt off of the root ball mm. uh, and suspending it so it was floating. And anyway, I I, I love any time that 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 people can 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 grab a really beautiful visual and then and then hand it off. I think that's uh, moving a tree. Let's. I. I <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's, it's students will ask questions, um, they'll broach issues that are, that are really expansive issues, 
in class, just in the course of a, a Q&A sure, or sure. in the course of clarifying the material. And I'll think to myself, well, if I had an hour to answer that question, I could. <laughs> but if I get five sentences, how can I try to answer that adequately? And um, the, ideally, I think you would cause them to reflect or cause them to ask some questions of themselves that help them realize the issues more complex or deeper than they appreciated coming in. You mean you, you need more than 140 characters? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I told them just this quarter that the great American novel is not going to be written on Twitter. Uh, it's it just the medium is just antagonistic to but that kind of But someone did, I don't know if it was the great, but there was that story of the, it was the Japanese schoolgirl who did a book in tweets. Yeah, mm -hmm. I thought someone tweeted Moby Dick or something like yeah, that. I've, <laughs> I've also, I've, I've, uh, I've met an artist who is, uh, is writing a book in tattoos. So you, hmm. you write to her and then you get one word that gets tattooed on your body somewhere and then eventually her novel will be complete once she has enough participants. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I love that. That's pretty, um, do you want to, uh, I can give you her address. I, I, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> it's, I, there's, it's when you get the word like, like scab. <laughs> you know, like, think about the words you don't want to yeah. receive. You know, and then lots of people you have just, the word the. You just get a semicolon or something. Yeah. <laughs> so I want you to explain, I'm, I'm going to post um, notes in the, in the show notes. Uh, what I, I think it's really interesting, and I, I love interviewing professors because I've, and I've said often on the show that uh, the only people you get to talk to are these students mm -hmm. and other professors. And so now people are going to get to hear this, and I guess through your TED Talk they'll get to hear that as well. But most people don't get to have this conversation, so I'm the surrogate for all of those people. What, what's interesting, when you look at all of the work that you've done, there's this, we've talked about technology, but you've done as much or more in the area of military ethics. That's right. And tell me the first time that thought crossed your mind. It says, oh, I like that. Well, I've, this, I can tell the long version of the story or I can tell a, we have a shorter version. Um, I suppose it all started when I was a little boy. I, see, we <laughs> always get the little boy story. I was watching the cavalry Unless come a little over the girl. Yeah. yeah. How old were you? Oh, my God. Seriously. I'm speaking metaphorically, but, well, in the, in the process of me being raised by my parents, yes. my, I think when my parents were trying to give me the, a kind of moral education and, and scolding me about, say, bad things I'd done, like sticking stuff to the ceiling of my house or whatever, my dad would always say, you have to think about the consequences of your actions. And, uh. and um, I think that stuck with me in a way that he didn't appreciate. And I think it still influences my... Um, substantive moral views. So when I first became interested in philosophy, of course, philosophers study lots of different kinds of questions, and people go into philosophy for lots of different reasons. There are, uh, genuinely, there are actually people that study, for example, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and things like that. So they're still studying those kinds of questions. Sure. Um, but I was concerned, if I was going to be studying philosophy, if I was going to be developing what I took to be these, these talents or this interest that I had, I was very concerned to make sure that I was contributing something consequential to the world. Huh. And I became uh, supremely interested in the question of restraining or circumscribing military conduct because war is perhaps the most consequential project uh, or ongoing endeavor um, that human beings engage in. And in undergrad, I wrote some papers on military ethics, and I was interested in 
the Iraq War, which was going on at the time, and interested in some different things that, uh, some different controversies that were arising about the ethics of the way that the United States was fighting in Iraq. In graduate school, I, that, that interest had sort of fallen away, right? As, as happens with a lot of people, our interests wax and wane over time, I think, and that one was waning until I saw a call for papers cross my desk for a special issue of a journal on cyber war. And I thought, oh, I'm interested in cyber war. This is a sort of side interest sure, I've had. Sure. Um, Stuxnet was in the news right then, yeah, which yeah. is the um, subject of a movie that came out recently. And Good movie. Yeah. Which which movie is that? The Zero Days. Zero yeah. Days about it's the Iran. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So good. And um, I thought, well, this is interesting. What kinds of philosophical questions or what kinds of questions about the ethics of war surround cyber war? And how is cyber war different from the way that war has been fought for the previous 10,000 years mm-hmm. or so? Mm-hmm. And how does it change the way that we need to think about our moral obligations and the restraints on the way that we fight? So I wrote an article for that. Um, that became my first um, pretty high-profile publication. Is and that the one? Is Stuxnet physical? Yep. Does it matter? And does it matter? So I'll, yeah. so there's a, I'll put a link to that so people sure. who are interested. In it. It's a fascinating topic. Yeah, yeah. And that that paper, oddly enough, became uh, my entrance into both military ethics. It, it resurrected mm. my military ethics career and initiated my career in emerging technologies because questions of cyber war combine both of those. They exist at the intersection. Yeah, and there are similar questions in military ethics about drones, for example, and that also involve questions of the use of technology and autonomous weapons or what we call killer robots. Give us one of the non-obvious questions. Um, About, say... Just drones. Drones? Well, um... One of the non-obvious questions. Some people, well, the basic question is whether the use of drones is permissible. Um, whether it's permissible to kill someone with a drone uh, rather than killing them in a more, say, up close and personal way. But <laughs> yeah. there's a there's a video on right now uh, that you can go look up that is has one of the uh, the, the just com- uh, commercial prosumer uh, uh, four propellered floating drones yes. that has a nine millimeter gun attached <laughs> to the front of it. And and there's a there's a mechanism that allows it to fire, so essentially this no is kidding. yeah so this it's is commercially available right I mean it's it hacked together a little bit right, but sure. but essentially you have I mean we're not just talking about the military here we're talking about any robot mm-hmm. that could 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 away from the the users so mechanism. it's not killing it is killing good or bad it's it's the method of killing right and having the remote six thousand miles away killing is that good or bad right. Yeah, so that's that's a question that people have asked, and that was a very influential. Do you have the answer? <laughs> it's forty-two. It's yeah. <laughs> the answer to most things is forty-two. It yeah. turns out. Yeah. Um, I, my hunch is that there's been it, it's a um, there's been more controversy over it than it merits. I think. Uh, Interesting. Or I'll, I'll put it uh, this yeah. way. Uh. Yeah. I think that we miss the forest for the trees when we focus on whether it's permissible to kill in particular cases with a drone. We're focusing on the mechanism rather than on the, the struggle. That's right. Yeah. And I think that there are much larger questions that we invite when we adopt drones or when we adopt new technologies. And I think the really troubling questions are about the kind of precedent we set and the kind of world that we're um, creating uh, intentionally or unintentionally. There's a there's a great line in um, 1984 that I reread the first time I was teaching this class, and uh, 
Orwell says something like, the real danger is not that the war will become uh, a grisly feature of everyday life, but the real danger is that the war will disappear into the background noise of life so much that it becomes sort mm. of, it becomes normalized and it becomes a kind of constant low boil that we never hear about, where the boundaries of the war are something that the average man can only guess at, he says. The boundaries of war. Yeah. And, and isn't that... Isn't that true right now? That's what's happening because the war is happening over there. The nation is not united behind a war effort like we were in World War II where, you know, our boys are all gone and we're, you know, we're doing everything we can. We're enduring hardships so that they can have the, the metal to make the parts that we need for them. And now it's like, you know, we, we actually um, harangue the, the veterans when they come back. And, and right. we, we're involved with some veterans and so we kind of take that super personal but yeah. it's to that point like it's oh yeah it's on tv yeah and it right it's it, to your point it's normalized that's right yeah I, I certainly think that it's normalized i should say that i'm not a sociologist or a political scientist and i would guess that the the sociological causes of the divisions that we have over the current wars are complex um but i do think that that's a, a kind of cost that we pay when we choose to wage war in this particular way, that it becomes normalized or that it becomes easy to forget or that ironically or paradoxically, because fewer people are touched by the war at home, which we would think is a good thing, uh, the war has a tendency to disappear into the background, which you could see as a bad thing. It Do makes it easier to perpetuate, I think. Mm. But isn't that isn't that also the cyber wars disappearing into the background? That we are part of the struggle of this recent election was that that every intelligence agency said we were hacked, we were attacked cyber. There, there was a cyber attack that that did in fact affect the election, um, and everybody still kind of the the mass the mass uh, population still kind of said yeah, but show us show us how that really because right. there's this this skepticism that it had that it had a physical effect. <laughs> That there was a physical manifestation of, of, oh well, of course they tried to influence, mm -hmm. uh, but there's, but you know, what what everybody kind of wants is a flipped switch or a smoking right. gun of, of it was it was set to be a yes and you switched it to no when I wasn't looking. That's what they and they want a document that identifies it. And we've we've become this kind of the skeptics society where we're just we're waiting for that. We have to see evidence otherwise. That's just got to drive you crazy. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's a mistake to think that the only way of interfering in an election is to flip a switch like that, is to manipulate the literal vote tallies. Of course, there are other problematic ways to interfere in elections. Now, whether this, whether what took place recently rises to that level is a separate question, but it's important for people to realize at the very first step that there's a broad variety of ways that one nation can interfere in the internal politics of another nation. And there are lots of ways of doing that short of manipulating a vote. And we've right. done, and we right. as as a society, I mean, on the record, this is not this is not conspiracy theory or secret information. We have done that for decades in in smaller countries in in Africa and Central America and South America. Like that's that we have entire of influencing elections of of attempting to get our preferred candidate into place. It's it's maybe ironic that we've now received a similar amount of treatment mm -hmm. from another country. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that that justifies any of that. No, <laughs> the no, fact that it's, no. Uh, the fact that it's the status quo. Um, well, it, it speaks to your point. Yeah. yeah. It's drifted into the background. Yeah. 
you raise another interesting question. There's actually a couple interesting questions about cyber warfare or activities in cyberspace more generally. There's one question which is called the problem of attribution, which you can imagine what that means. It's extraordinarily difficult to attribute attacks in cyberspace because sophisticated countries have all kinds of ways of concealing and uh, submerging the origins of their attacks and funneling them through innocent third-party states and that kind of thing. So it's, it's genuinely difficult to know who did it. It's, it, it, you know what's coming back to mind is we had a, a guy on the show, Jerry Knotts, who was a um, engineer uh, during the Vietnam War. <clears throat> and he would fly in the <laughs> planes. This, go back and listen to this episode because this story is devastating. Hmm. And it, it speaks directly to the origin of the attack because his job the the fighters he was with was to find where the gun batteries were in the jungle because they couldn't see them. Get them to launch a missile at him. Yeah. Gotcha. So he would fly the plane and get them to launch, and then they turn and flew into that. Mm, into the missile? Yes. And wobble and go up and fly up and down with his plane, which would cause the, the missile's tracking system to lose track and t- begin tumbling and then, then they could go after the, the site that had shot at him. Mm. But so there was finding the origin. So finding the origin of the attack is important because you want to make that thing go away. Right. And with, with cyber technology, of course, erasing footprints and having, uh, uh, you know, browsers that you, right. you can have your incognito browser right. and yeah. all of those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I spoke with um, a colleague of mine who's a computer scientist <laughs> and... Uh, we were talking about the the Sony hack that was attributed to right. North Korea. Right. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, you know, I was so impressed by the forensic job that the investigators had done to attribute this to North Korea because a few details here and there leaked out about what tipped them off. And one of the things that they thought they had found, one of the things they felt confident about, was that the malicious code had been written on a Korean keyboard. And I said, how could they tell that it was right. typed on a Korean keyboard? Because you input the characters and they end up in, you know, the standard Unicode, whatever. And he said, you can look at the typos and you can see what letters are close to each other on different languages oh of keyboards. God. And I thought that's just phenomenally interesting. I mean, yeah. the, the, kind uh, of, <clears throat> the kind of detective work that you have to do in cyberspace to, to be able to attribute. The CSI of exactly. it. Exactly. I have, I have a, a personal, thank God you're here. Um, <laughs> Because uh, th- this question came up in, in one of our friend circle conversations the other day, or maybe it was just the shower. But um, uh, Snowden, uh, I've been watching a little bit of Snowden's. Uh, the y- new film. No, no, his interviews. I, oh, I like watching uh, his interviews um, because it's very interesting to me that, that these roles of people, uh, and my, my initial question is going to be this. Uh, he was trained as a, uh, as a computer geek. As a, a super nerd, a uh, hacker, uh, all the way into computers, I do not know that he has a philosophical background. And so, my when he goes on uh, in front of a large group of an audience, and he's got the screen, and they say, "Snowden, what do you think?" They don't ask him, "What do you think about the quality of code or about the quality of surveillance?" What they end up asking him are the moral implications of uh, uh, of keeping track of everybody in your country. And what's interesting to me is he, I don't think he has 
the the background to make that statement, uh, and much like Chelsea Manning, um, they were they were these two people who were working for the government, sitting at a desk, and the information that was crossing their desk was in the field that they were stu- were, were working on. But they aren't they themselves don't necessarily have an ethics background or a philosophy background. And I I, I always wonder like if 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 this room that's in, that's advising the president is full of people that don't have an ethics background, but they mm. they know how to use the missile but not whether they should use the missile or not. And I guess which is why we have civilian, you know, oversight. But but my my thoughts about that about about like what what would it have meant? What would Snowden have done had he had your class? Mm-hmm. Had he taken the ethics Ooh. background class? There you go, professor. Boy, yeah, don't put that on me. Well, <laughs> I, somebody like you, like had yeah, he yeah. had he somewhere along the lines uh, had that ethic because I because the mm. other thing is is that Snowden was not the sole proprietor of 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 that job nor was Chelsea Manning, thousands of people inside of our network or hundreds or dozens or whatever had that job and did not take all of that information and hand it over to the media. Yeah, that's a good point. So it's interesting to me that, that not everybody came to the same conclusion. While mm. I agree with, you know, that I'm glad that that information exists out in the world, it's interesting to me that he was not, you know, that he was making that decision based on a game, bo- a, a guy who was into gaming, a guy who was into, you know what I mean? Like, like the decisions were being made by somebody who didn't have a broader scope. Yeah. I think that uh, people that are immersed in this kind of world, I think they have a way of developing a kind of implicit ethical code. And when they act in accordance with that ethical code, I think they often do the right thing. Uh, One of the roles of philosophers, though, if we dip our toes into those worlds, is to help crystallize and make precise or to specify what the criteria of those codes are. And once we've sort of abstracted away the principles that other people are acting by implicitly. Once we have them in front of us, then Mm. we can really criticize them and subject them to scrutiny. So as it turns out, uh, two days ago, I taught on the ethics of whistleblowing um, in in one of my classes. Yeah, yeah. And um, the author that we read gave five criteria. And um, just as you were speaking, I was sort of going over those criteria in my head and thinking about whether Snowden can check all of those boxes. Was this the article that was talking about like like traditional whistleblowing versus versus what we've got now? There's a, I think it's a New Yorker article. Mm. No, this yeah. When I say article, I mean academic journal yeah. article. Oh, yes. Uh, so so this person said uh, they have to be convinced that the particular person inside the potential whistleblower has to be convinced that the harm to the public is significant and they have to exhaust all of the channels within their organization Mm -hmm. to raise these alarms. And then before they go public, they have to have evidence that would convince a reasonable, impartial uh, person, like the press. And they have to have good reason to think that their whistleblowing would actually change, would actually ameliorate the kind of harm that they're trying to prevent. What about the damage to the whistleblower in the sense of following those channels? They, They would be under physical threat. Right. You know, like when, when people say like, oh, well, they didn't do it properly. Mm-hmm. They didn't they didn't break the rules properly. You know, like that there's <laughs> they didn't you know, they didn't. You said, no, yeah. there's a there's yeah, yeah. a there's a established order of how you have to circumvent your bosses. Right. Yeah. That is kind of odd, isn't it? It's uh. not really. You know what I mean? Like, like if, if, if it's if you're saying that your boss is doing something wrong and your first meeting is with that boss, then that doesn't really ameliorate the. Ameliorate, ameliorate, ameliorate. <laughs> oh, that's a good word. <laughs> yeah, you're you're right. Um, that is that certainly puts you in an awkward position, and knowing that the your boss has authority to fire you, they hold your your livelihood or your career in their hand. Um, it's going to certainly. 
decrease your incentive <laughs> for bringing that information out to the public. And you might think that that's a kind of problematic conflict. You were talking about, um, you said the role of philosopher is to crystallize and make precise a code of ethics. Did I get that right? Yeah, that sounds and, right. It's a good t-shirt. Um, <laughs> Snappy. And when I look at your fields, um, it says normative ethics. I have no idea what that is. Um, so I want to understand what that is because I'm familiar with the word situational ethics. Mm -hmm. So help us understand those two things. So philosophy is uh, cut into lots of different fields. At, at the highest level, some people study the nature of knowledge and some people study the nature of reality and space and time and that kind of thing. And some people study the nature of value, like me. So what kinds of things are valuable? What kinds of things are good and bad? What actions are right and wrong? What is the nature of praise and to blame? And what's their purpose and that kind of thing? I, and then within ethics, there are a, a couple different domains you could study. You could study what's called meta-ethics, which, mm. which asks questions about ethics. So what do we mean when we say that something is good? What do we mean when you say that you have a moral reason to do something? What do the terms right and wrong actually refer to? Uh, that's a little too rarefied for my taste. <laughs> in, in, the, in the arts, that's called institutional critique. There you go. Yeah. Where, where you go after the museum. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and then below that, if you will, is, is normative ethics, which says, well, if we can take for granted that the terms right and wrong and good and bad actually make sense in the world, uh, that we are referring to real phenomenon and that um, we do think that some actions are right and wrong and that there are some things we should and shouldn't do. What's the best overarching theory that can systematize and explain why those things are good or bad? Now, in this field, and then below that, there's applied ethics. So applied ethics would study, say, the ethics of abortion, the ethics of capital punishment, the ethics of taxation and things like that. War, right? War, military ethics would fall under applied ethics. But going back up to normative ethics, the way that I like to explain philosophy, certainly this, this tradition of philosophy that I was trained in, is that we see ourselves as a kind of scientist. We're gathering data about the world, about the world that we know exists. For scientists, it might be physics or chemistry, right? The way that objects behave, the way that reactions play out. And we're trying to devise the general principles that explain why things are that way in the external world. Hmm. And moral philosophers, at least s some of them, are doing exactly that kind of thing. So when I tell you that lying is wrong and assault is wrong and animal abuse is wrong, all those things are wrong, which I think all of us agree, um, <laughs> what's the best explanation for why those kinds of actions are wrong and other things like high fives and playing baseball are permissible. Um, so what, what determines what makes actions right or wrong? And what's the best, simplest, and most powerful theory that we can devise that explains that? Much the same way that the scientific method works. Is there a name for that? Yeah, it's normative ethics. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Do you, Got it. Do you, I think I find in academia a lot that there's a, there's a struggle where you start to get into this, this, um, I'm fearful of using the wrong words here, um, but 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 uh, because you just said uh, lying is wrong, yeah, and and then um, I I hear the three hour argument 
that, that undergrads uh, are going to have or, or grad students are going to have over that where they can spend the entire night going back and forth about like I can find analogous information in situations where where uh, you know line serves a huge benefit and and creates creates positive outcomes and all sorts of like you know I can hype up both sides mm-hmm. uh, and uh, this is this is the the reality uh, conversation that everybody's always having about like what is reality if it's just perceived by us and mm-hmm. and and how what is the how do, how does you how do you and how do how does do you do philosophers these days kind of like navigate their way out of that whirlpool? Well, I think uh, some of them choose to spend their lives in that whirlpool, yeah. mm-hmm. and they're and they're happy to to talk about those discussions. Um, there are lots of people that talk about. Uh, well, the, I think some of the people that study knowledge and truth and justification and those yeah. those kinds of belief, the way that we form our beliefs and what kinds of beliefs are justified beliefs, those kinds of people might be interested in the nature of deception and lying. And uh, clearly a closely related question about what makes lying wrong. When is it wrong? Is it always wrong? A few people would say it's always wrong. Mm -hmm. And few philosophers would say it's always wrong. They disagree, of course, about when it's right and wrong and what explains the distinction between permissible and impermissible cases of lying. But um, some of them do talk about that. And if a student brought that up, I mean, (laughs) um, yesterday in class, I asked my my students why theft was wrong uh, to sort of prompt a discussion about the nature of the difference between stealing a physical object and, say, pirating a movie. Because if I steal a physical object, there's a very easy explanation for why that's wrong. I've made someone worse off. I've taken away something that they used to have that they no longer have. You've created damage. Right. If I make a copy of a movie, I've left the other person in exactly the same state they were in before. So we have to tell a different kind of story about why theft is wrong if it's going to be wrong in that kind of case. So this is so this is a real question. You know, um, this is the other problem is because now we've got you here in studio, and I just want to go like, well, okay, but you're taking away their potential earnings, and so potential earnings become a, a damage of them in the future versus versus present tense. So so while yeah, you have left them in the exact same. So that's and right. I, I'm just like ah, oh, I want to hang out with philosophers more. Right? No, me too. Me too. I, I'm thinking actually of uh, of uh, TED 2017. Uh, which you can't do this that I want to do, but I've got. <laughs> Don't I wanna, say it out loud. I'm recording. I'm totally gonna. Do, <laughs> but I, I, I'm reading Kevin Kelly's book, The Inevitable, and it's these twelve trends, and he's laying them out for us. But I want a philosopher to talk about each of those twelve things mm. to say what's the impact of that from that person's point of view, because they're going to ask questions that I don't normally ask. I'm hunter-gatherer, business, entrepreneur, got to make the money, make mm-hmm. the product, sell it, you know, marketing, all of that stuff. And, and our listeners are like that. So it's, and that's why this, I love the show, because it's a different lens to look at things through, through your eyes, because yeah. we don't ask those questions. Yeah, you know, that, that's great. The, the question that we're talking about in my philosophy of technology class right now is the theory of technological determinism, which is the view that technology is uh, evolving according to its own kind of laws Mm. in the same way that natural selection might change life and that it's kind of sweeping human beings along with it. And when you when you spell this out for students, they often say, "That's ridiculous! Look, human uh, beings, <laughs> human beings are the ones that make technology. Technology doesn't do anything on its own." Yet, and in that, yeah, yet, yet is true. And in that sense, that's right. But in then, when you leave a philosophy classroom, when you're no longer afraid of confronting an idea like that, 
we talk this way all the time. Mm, we ask questions mm, about mm. where technology's headed, and we talk about Moore's Personifying law. Personifying it as, a, as an entity that has physical force in the world. That's right. Yeah. And, and we, we say that these trends are inevitable, right? Right. right? And we say, well, there's no resisting progress, right? And it's foolish to try to, to you know, you better get ahead of the, the trend and wherever it's leading. But didn't like Moore's law fell down? Yeah, so Moore's law was a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy um, that I, I guess has been undermined. But for a long time, it was functioning. A, lo a long time, people treated it sure. exactly as the way you would treat a scientific law. Yeah, right. Yeah. Here's something that we know is going to happen. Well, that's odd because you're predicting human behavior. You're predicting the machines that human beings choose to make ba over the next couple on, decades. Based on innovation that happens in laboratories by people who are just trying hard to achieve things. Yep. Yeah. It, that's like saying, like you know, the, the quality of a light bulb will in, will will constantly increase at a certain that's rate. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, but but innovation lands at very odd times in unexpected ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it is changing. It is changing. He, he calls it becoming, <laughs> uh, which is an interesting word. But it's, it just, I think it's another way that we should be looking at things and, and, and having these kinds of conversations, not just 20-year-olds having them, but maybe 40-year-olds <laughs> and 50-year-olds having Now, we them. are too busy reading the news in our <laughs> echo chambers yeah. Of, yeah. Of, of the things God. that we already know to be what we disagree with. <laughs> I just want to read more things I disagree with. That's the only thing I'm interested in reading. I'm too days. busy being shown things that make me angry. Yes, yes. <laughs> anger porn. I just love looking uh, at... Is that <laughs> what it's called? Anger. There's our t-shirt. <laughs> that's the shirt. No, it's that's not because I think that's an actual thing. I was about to say, that might have more than one, yeah, <laughs> more than one meaning. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about line, um, it got me thinking about something that I was exposed to when I was uh, 17, situational ethics. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, raised in a Christian home where, you know, the ethics aren't, aren't already laid out for you. And you, <laughs> you can't, don't have to think about them. Right, it's, We've it's, got the commandments. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what it is. And that, but then a situation comes up and now I can, I bend the rules. And that's, and I think there was a book at the time called Situational Ethics. So mm -hmm. That's so. That's going to be forty something years ago. Um, but is is that what that is about? Well, ph so philosophers don't use that term, okay. situational ethics, okay. or situation ethics. But they would certainly agree that there are very few moral obligations that are absolute. Mm. So there are very few things that are always right or always wrong. Um, a popular way of thinking about this is that we have multiple duties, multiple kinds of independent duties, like say assisting people or benefiting other people if we have an opportunity, and keeping promises. Uh, so if I make a promise to someone, I have a pretty good reason to keep it. If I'm going to break that promise, I need a good reason to break it. And there's a, f a famous example. Uh, say I've made an appointment to meet someone for lunch, and on the way to lunch, I see a stranded motorist who needs my help. Now I have a conflict of duties. Uh, on the one hand, I have an obligation to keep my promise. On the other hand, I have an obligation to help this person. And these obligations collide. And I have to make a choice about which one of them I can satisfy, because I can't satisfy both of them. Uh, so one way of looking at that is to say, well, there's a situation where maybe it's not wrong to break a promise, but, but philosophers have been straining to, to clarify and systematize exactly when hmm. it's right or wrong to break a promise. And that's one of, the, one of the explanations they've given, is that you have uh, a handful, maybe a dozen of these independent sort of free-floating obligations, and they can come into contact with each other and override one another. 
and we can't even know for sure that one of them is always strongest. Sometimes maybe I have made a promise that is so important that I can drive by this person, for example. So they're not always going to, they don't come in a sort of hierarchy of uh, importance or significance. That's one theory. That's a very popular theory. How young could you introduce philosophy to someone? That's a great question. <laughs> and I think uh, the answer, if I'm really starry-eyed about this, I might say as soon as a person can speak or read. And as a matter of fact, where I did my PhD at Colorado in Boulder, there was a program called the Philosophy Outreach Program of Colorado. And what they did was they funded trips, you know, they paid for gas or whatever for grad students to go around to different schools, high schools, middle schools, all the way down to kindergarten and lead philosophical discussions with students. Okay, so stay, stay with that. Sure. So I've got a, a room of 10-year-olds, and um, I'll, I'll get them for you. <laughs> and um, what's your opening salvo? Uh, I'm, there are lots of things that I can that I can ask because I have a ten year old in mind that yeah, I'm yeah. totally doing this with. There's you know there's one um, one of my professors at, at Colorado used to talk about philosophy by saying that philosophers are adults that keep asking the questions that uh, children ask, but then adults stop oh. asking. Yeah, we're people that keep asking the questions that children ask um, because children are some of the most natural and most energetic philosophers that you find. They're the ones for whom everything mm. is new and everything is interesting and everything is mysterious. And peeling back the layers of that mystery is a really invigorating experience. So you can ask, <laughs> you can ask the sort of um, bumper sticker versions of the same questions that we're asking now. What makes actions right or wrong? Mm. Um, if mm -hmm. your teacher tells you to do something, does that make it right? Um, or what, like if, ki what kind of authority do you mm -hmm. acknowledge? Yeah, yeah. Or if, you're, if your parents tell you that it's okay to hit, you know, your friend, is it okay to hit your friend? Um, you can ask about the nature of color, right, if you're in an art class. Well, what makes this painting beautiful and this painting ugly? Or is there such a thing as beauty, objective beauty out there in the world? Um, is there could, such a thing as objective beauty? Oh, what a great question. Not a question yeah. that I study, but yeah. a question that yeah. other philosophers definitely study. Oh, I guess that would make sense for you. Yeah, no, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. sorry yeah. I'm going to filter everything through there. Yeah. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. No, that's great. Um, what's, the you know, what's the purpose of art? Does art communicate things? Those are questions that, that people in aesthetics study. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would we would have people listen to Glenn, mm -hmm. who was on the show just recently. We just posted that. Um, because we got into some of those interesting things, especially with um, progress by. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember any show that I'm not on currently. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about progress in the Guggenheim, where oh oh he oh was, right um, yeah uh, is Tino the, Segal yeah is the artist uh, who has created works of art that exist only as ephemeral experience. Mm. Yeah, they have no physical representation. They have yeah. no contracts, no scripts, no anything. That's but, phenomenal. I I. I dig process art and the, that sort of conceptual art a lot. Yeah, that that I went and actually looked into that as I told you. Yes, and, and it was just just interesting. And you know what else is interesting? It's been forty eight minutes, mm -hmm. and uh, we're at the end of. But our what show. is time? Really? What is, oh what yeah, is okay. Time? There you what go. Thank time? you. I had, to, I had to get that in there. Thank you. What is time? <laughs> time uh. is what keeps everything from happening all at once. Mm.
Ooh, that, that's maybe the pretty, best definition I've heard. <laughs> Sorry, that's flying Karamazov brothers and how they explain juggling. That's great. Uh, time, wait, wait, say it again. Time is what keeps everything from happening all at once. Oh, God, that is, those Karamazov brothers. Yeah, those guys are pretty good. <laughs> I knew what they were uh, doing. And it is time now because Kevin is saying, ask the question, ask the question. Mm. We get to put a title mm-hmm. on this show and we get to bookmark it and put a bow around it. And Professor, what would we call this show? Um, well, there are a couple good, a couple good things I think that we talked about. Um, the nature of value, I think, is something that we talked about. It's an interesting question. Um, Hanging out with philosophers is great because they just leave you with more questions. They well, are not in the answer business. As, as it as it turns out, I already wrote that down as the title. Yeah, and so you um, you win the prize. I like and that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's exactly it. Thank you so much for yeah. joining us. I'm going to make links on how to find you. I think the most comprehensive page was um, your page at the philosophy department at Cal Poly. Mm-hmm. So people who want to learn more and read more, this is is fascinating stuff. I'll make links to the books and things that we reference. Thank you very much. Appreciate you coming down to join us. I also want to thank California Lutheran University's School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Polestring Press. If you're interested in partnering with us, send us a note, partner at 805connect.com. And Patrick, how can um, the students, uh, because I know that we're going to have students listen to this. Yeah. How, how, how could they help us? Um, uh, you know, find find a, a friend, a family member, uh, somebody else who uh, needs a good podcast to listen to and uh, get them subscribed to this podcast. Uh, I One of the great joys of my uh, couple weeks is to come in here and get to be uh, in the room with all of the wonderful people that Mark is able to uh, suss out of our community. And uh, so I think share that with as many people as you can. Uh, And then also let us know what we're doing right and uh, what you think we're doing wrong, uh, because it turns out that there is a right and wrong. And uh, (laughs) which we learned today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And uh, so send us uh, send us some information. uh, Email Mark. Let him know. I um, I'd love hearing from you guys. Um, you, you drop me notes. I appreciate it. Or you, um, I see you around town. He said, "Mark, you here's this person you've got to get on the show," and uh, we reach out and people. It, it's actually an easy ask, as it turns out. Yeah. Would you like to be on my show? Is kind of how that question goes. And they go, yeah. "I would love to," yeah. and uh, it's trying to curate those fascinating people. That's one of the fun parts of my job. Um, so you could send me a note to mark at 805connect.com and I will absolutely uh, actually call you and talk to you, which I love to do. <laughs> uh, which I do that. It's, it's, I, I love it. that. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations. 